Hey there, friends. How's it going? My name is Kyle Devlin, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the Having a Blast podcast. Having a Blast is a pop punk and emo podcast where we'll be doing a deep dive on important albums and bands. We'll also be speaking with band members, producers, and friends. If you happen to like what you hear, if you could do me a huge favor, perhaps give us a five-star review. That just really helps get the algorithms working in our favor, and then more people can hear the podcast. Or Another thing that really helps us out is if you share it with a friend. If you've got a friend that enjoys this type of music, pop punk and indie, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. friends what is up welcome to the show this is having a blast i am your host kyle devlin and today i'm going to be doing a brief history and a rundown of why i think travis barker is the smartest and most creative force within the music industry and certainly within the scene quote unquote or pop punk in general not just because he happens to be in one of the biggest pop punk bands in existence that's still regularly active and i would imagine is going to be putting out a new record next year but for a whole litany of reasons and I'm going to try to get into all of them. I'm going to try to cover as many things as I can in a non-fluff way. We'll also give a brief rundown of his history because man, this guy's got a history. He's lived a lot of life within the music industry and I am going to be honest the older I get, the more I respect Travis Barker. Now, that's not to say that I necessarily think he's the greatest drummer of all time. I don't even know if I could necessarily classify any drummer as being the greatest drummer of all time because I am not a drummer. Now, I understand the concept of drums. I can skeleton out a programmed drum session based on what I've learned through listening to music over the years and playing with different drummers and things, but I'm still not a drummer. So that's not what this is going to be. I'm not going to try to convince you that Travis Barker is the best drummer of all time, which that always kind of irks me when I see articles online where they're trying to give a rundown of why somebody's the best ever. I think every single human being is unique and special in several ways. So if there's somebody who is doing something in particular very well, I think we need to just appreciate them for doing it how they do it and recognize that we don't necessarily have to have a best of everything all the time. However, I do think Travis Barker is an incredibly smart and savvy businessman, entrepreneur, and I think the lens at which he looks at music is incredibly smart, incredibly intelligent, and very intentional and thoughtful. And I don't think he does things on accident. I think he is very purposeful with what he does, and I think he gets more and more purposeful as he gets older. And I'll give examples for why I think that is. But let's start with a brief rundown of the history of his childhood, what we know so far. And he did put out a book six years ago in 2015. I'd highly recommend it. It is a trip to read. I know he was involved in the writing of the book. He didn't write the book himself. He wrote it with a Rolling Stone contributor that he had already done pieces with named Gavin. Edwards. And one of the reasons he decided to do the book was because he had a familiarity with Gavin and he felt comfortable with Gavin and he felt comfortable that Gavin could write his story appropriately. So it was straight from the horse's mouth, straight from the drummer's mouth. Travis Barker gave all of his life details. And I think in the last six years, you could probably write another book just to encapsulate everything that's happening. And that's happened because it's pretty astonishing what he's been able to accomplish in the last six years. Okay, so let's start with the history of 
Travis Barker, starting with when he was born. He was born in November 1975. His birthday is November 14th, which means he's turning 46 years old in five days. Travis Landon, middle name Landon Barker, is an American musician who serves as a drummer, as I mentioned, for the rock band, punk rock band, pop punk band, Blink-182. He has also performed as a frequent collaborator with hip-hop artists, obviously is a member of the rap rock group, The Transplants. He founded the rock bands Plus 44 and Boxcar Racer with Mark Hoppus and Tom DeLong, respectively, and Damask. And he even recorded drums for a Goldfinger record, The Knife, which came out a few years ago. Barker was a frequent collaborator with the late DJ AM. I know they were friends, and he was with him in his tragic plane accident in 2008. And together they formed Travis DJ AM. Due to his fame, Rolling Stone referred to him as Punk's first superstar drummer, as well as one of the 100 greatest drummers of all time. Obviously, he's a great drummer, but again, I'm not going to make the argument that he's the best drummer of all time. He just happens to be an individual who plays drums, but I wanted to highlight the fact that I think in an entrepreneurship sense, he has done things that no drummer and arguably no musician has ever done before. And I would agree, he is 100% a superstar in his own right, not just a drummer, a star in general. He was born in Fontana, California. He began drumming at a very early age. He said in many interviews that he officially started playing drums at the age of four, and he started out by just beating pots and pans in his kitchen. And his mom took notice, and his mom said, we need to get him a drum set. So his mom was very smart too. Very smart in the fact that she saw the promise, saw the potential, and decided to buy him the instrument for which he would become an icon of. And he played other instruments as a kid. He played trumpet in school, but he always gravitated back towards the drums. He's mentioned that he grew up in a lower income, working class family, but not a musical family. So that's kind of interesting. He became the outlier, somebody that was a professional musician, but that was not something that he was born into. None of his family members were professional musicians or musicians in general, and they were lower middle class in California. So I would imagine they struggled just like most lower income families do. It's pretty cool that they were still able to get him a drum set at such an early age. He began playing for the Aquabats, the ska punk band in 1996, but left to join Blink-182, but left to join Blink-182 in 1998, which encountered, obviously, mainstream success with Enema of the State, and they were picking up steam before that with Dude Ranch and Damn It being on all the movie soundtracks. And there's a very stark contrast to the drumming on Dude Ranch versus Enema of the State, and that was one of the things that was brilliant on his part. And the fact that Jerry Finn allowed him to be such a technical drummer on a pop-punk record, I think the fact that they're a trio, that's the only thing that allows it to happen. The fact that Travis Barker can play these really complex beats over really, really simple musicianship and lullabies for melodies. That was very smart on Travis Barker's part. And ultimately that created a sound and not only a sound, but a look as well. But if you listen to Enema of the State, some of those drum patterns are incredibly technical and complex and amazing. That was the first time you had heard something like that. I mean, Green Day is one of my favorite bands of all time. Dookie's my favorite album of all time. And Trey plays in the pocket, but I think we have to recognize the brilliance of the creative force that is Travis Barker because his drumming is one of a kind. Even if you don't necessarily think he's the most proficient or the most technical drummer of all time or the best drummer of all time, you can't deny the level of influence that he created just from drumming alone and it started with Enema of the State. 
Travis Barker established himself as a versatile drummer, producing and making guest appearances and music projects of numerous music genres, as well as alternative pop and country, along with hip-hop, which I mentioned earlier. He also starred in an MTV reality TV series named Meet the Barkers from 2005 to 2008. He was involved in the plane crash in 2008, but he recovered and released his debut solo album, Give the Drummer Some, in 2011. He has continued to work with rappers, releasing extended plays with Yellow Wolf, Asher Roth and Knots, as well as with Blink-182 and The Transplants. Aside from drumming, which I'll get into as well, he founded the clothing company Famous Stars and Straps in 1999 and LaSalle Records in 2004. Companies such as DC Shoes, Zildjian Symbols have co-designed products in his name. He released a memoir, as I mentioned earlier, Can I Say, Living Large, Cheating Death, and Drums, 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 which is a great, great title six years ago. All right, so rather than recite the entire history of Travis Barker, which you can read in his fascinating memoir. I want to go down the list of some incredibly smart things that I think Travis Barker has done in his career. All of these items have led him to where he currently exists today, which is essentially a pop punk icon and a pop punk mogul at this point. So we're going to start with his time in the Aquabats. He played in mini bands in the early to mid 90s in California, including the band Snot, appropriately named, and Feeble, where he met Chad Larson, who co-founded the Aquabats in 1994, but his first big noteworthy band that he was a part of was indeed the Aquabats. When they enlisted him to join the band, he was actually working as a trash man. So a true rags to riches story here. I mean, clearly he knew how to work and he had regular jobs just like we all do at some point in our lives, which probably taught him humility and taught him how to have a work ethic. And I'm sure his parents did that as well. The Aquabats are a silly ska punk band and they're known for dressing up in costumes and being the first official self-coined superhero band. And as I mentioned, they formed in 1994. Travis played for the Aquabats from roughly 1996 through 1998. After the October 1997 release of The Fury of the Aquabats, the group toured nationwide with San Diego-based band Blink-182, who had recently completed their second album, Dude Ranch, with Mark Trombino. The trio's drummer, Scott Rayner, announced to his fellow members that he would depart following the Snowcore tour in February of 1998. The ensemble then enlisted Travis to fill in for Scott Rayner. Travis, who had not had time to prepare or practice with the duo, learned the drum tracks for the 20-song set list. 20 songs, jeez. In only 45 minutes before the first show and performed them flawlessly thereafter. <laughs> so he's a fast learner. Scott, the band's original drummer, returned that May, but arguments only grew worse. Scott Rayner was then fired by DeLong and Hoppus. So Tom and Mark fired Scott ostensibly over a drinking problem, and that's what the song Man Overboard's about. The band then recruited Travis once more to come and play with them. Clearly, Travis was open to opportunity. He knew that he could have some band upward mobility. He put himself out there. He was willing to try hard. He was willing to work hard in order to learn this other band's set list and then perform it flawlessly. While he was probably also being pulled in directions towards the Aquabats, I'm sure they had things on the agenda list as far as touring and continuing to write songs and maybe even gearing up for a new record at that point. So he was willing to put himself out there. He was willing to work his ass off in order to potentially put himself in a position where he was in a much more popular and financially successful band. Aquabats member Adam Debert was quoted as saying, I remember 
remember Travis rehearsing backstage for an hour or two, then playing with them during sound checks. So he's talking about Blink. A few of us were standing by the stage and I vividly remember the feeling of this is the new Blink. We should have looked for a new drummer right then because it was so obvious what band he belonged in. So right away, the Aquabats knew they were going to lose their drummer. That was probably, I would imagine it was fairly obvious at that point. Blink had a lot of momentum. They were already currently blowing up. Damn it was getting a lot of radio play, getting a lot of attention. They were getting a lot of attention. I think it was a couple years before this where I really started listening to Blink-182. I was a huge fan of Dude Ranch. Tom DeLonge and Mark Hoppus have said that the addition of Travis in the band Blink-182 inspired them to play better and keep up with their new drummer, whom Tom DeLonge called perfect. <laughs> Travis Barker continued playing with Blink-182 throughout 1998, and that was the first year that I saw them. That was the Dude Ranch tour, and opening bands were Homegrown and MXPX, so it was a great, great tour. He then went on to play with the Vandals, where he filled in for Josh Freeze as the year closed, which is insane. There's few drummers that are going to be able to keep up with Josh Freeze. Another incredible, incredibly smart drummer, really. Could do a whole episode on him, too. So yeah, Travis Barker was filling in for Josh Freeze, and I know Josh Freeze is good friends with the members of Blink-182, and I'm pretty sure Blink and the Vandals went on tour at one point, if not just the Warp Tour. So this highlights the first really smart move of Travis Barker, and that was in joining Blink-182. The writing was on the wall. Blink was poised to blow up. He obviously saw the promise and potential in them, and ultimately he made the right decision, a very wise decision. And in many ways, this is what started the career arc, the trajectory of his career, and it was basically up from there. So his first effort recording with Blink was Enema of the State, which was released in June of 1999 and catapulted the trio to stardom, becoming the biggest pop-punk band of the era. Three singles were released from the record, What's My Age Again, which also helped catapult them and immediately was successful and in regular rotation on MTV. All the small things followed suit. The same thing, Adam's song was a massive success as well. They each crossed over into the top 40 radio format and experienced major commercial success. All the small things became a number one hit on the modern rock track chart, but also became a crossover hit and peaked at number six on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. Its video parodied boy bands and pop music videos and won a Moon Man for Best Group Video at the 2000 MTV Video Music Awards. And I'm pretty sure they performed that year as well. I think they played Man Overboard if I remember correctly, or maybe that was the following year. At that time too, it's worth mentioning that Travis Barker, he never had to be larger than life. He could just allow Tom and Mark to be the stars of the show and they were charismatic and funny and they had all the banter live. He could just play drums, which was very smart. Even in the videos, he's fairly docile. He's fairly expressionless. And he could be because it served him well as his role as the drummer, the quiet, shy drummer in Blink-182, even though I would imagine even during this time behind the scenes, he was making smart moves, he was making bold moves, and he was helping chart the success path that would ultimately become the legacy of Blink-182. Enema of the State has sold over 15 million copies worldwide and had a considerable effect on pop punk music. I mean, that's putting it lightly. It influenced the look of the era. It influenced the sound of the era. Everybody wanted to look and sound like Blink-182. There were probably millions of copycats and so many bands that were, countless bands that were influenced by that record and Blink in general. Even in the look of the drums, I don't know if you guys remember, but I remember when everybody had their crash cymbals really, really high. This was a Travis Barker move. It was completely and utterly influenced by Travis Barker. Not to mention the look, the long dickies with the 
high knee socks. I'm sure you remember this. Every band was doing this by the time it was 2000. In a great video by Finn McKinty, he mentions the fact that a lot of this style was influenced by gang culture of the West Coast and LA and Southern California in general. And whenever you saw Travis Barker in any of these press photos, his Dickies length to knee socks ratio was always the most insane. You couldn't see any of his legs for a period of time in all of those photos because his Dickie shorts were so long and his high socks would basically cover his legs. And this look was popularized and mimicked by bands like Simple Plan, Sum 41, Good Charlotte, and countless others. And this look, whether it be the way you set up your drum set or the way you wore your Dickies pants and long socks was directly influenced by Travis Barker. I don't know if Tom DeLonge and Mark Hoppus would have been wearing those shorts and socks if it weren't for Travis Barker. Sure, they would have been wearing Loser Kid shirts and Atticus shirts and all the other companies that they were affiliated with and sponsored by, but there's no denying that Travis Barker created a style with this look. Travis Barker then did something that was very smart and he clearly recognized that fame was going to be a game changer when it came to branding and that's when he started his clothing line Famous Stars and Straps in 1999. His brand, that brand, catered to the punk rock skateboarding community. His love for tattoo art heavily influenced his designs and overall style and you could see it in the clothing and everybody wanted to wear that. I think Famous Stars and Straps was the first punk rock brand really. I mean you had LoserKids.com which helped to sell multi-million dollars worth of gear from Famous Stars and Straps and Tom and Mark Hoppus they both followed suit and they were doing the same thing with Atticus and other brands but there was no denying that the band's success Blink-182 did amazing things for Travis Barker and it was incredibly smart of him to start a clothing brand during that time which others also copied. He was quoted as saying four years ago meaning in 1999 four years ago I couldn't afford to feed myself but now I can buy art work on old Cadillacs and live in comfort I can finally buy a dog. It was around this time that Travis Barker branched out into an actual brick and mortar retail space at this time opening a store in Riverside called Famous Stars and Straps. The storefront was actually shut down by the city but Famous Stars and Straps products began to be carried by other retailers and via the internet and what's interesting about this time period is this is around the time that people really started purchasing things online and of course there was skepticism but I think people wanted to get their hands on Famous Stars and Straps shirts especially band members. I remember touring around that time and every single person you'd go to a show and at least one of the band members was wearing a Famous Stars and Straps t-shirt or a belt buckle or a hat or some type of gear associated with that brand and I think that's really what helped propel the brand. It became associated with Blink and that music and those bands and you really started seeing sales being generated by the internet specifically and I would imagine that was a very profitable venture for Travis Barker. I mean he continued doing Famous Stars and Straps for over a decade after that so the band then meaning Blink-182 began its first arena tour in the fall of 1999 but Barker missed much of the 2000 Mark Tom and Travis show tour after he broke his finger and I remember seeing this the drummer for Phoenix DX filled in for him this is when they had Bad Religion open for him which was really cool and who knows maybe that was Travis Barker's idea I know they were all fans of Bad Religion and they grew up with Bad Religion but to have a punk rock band that had you know essentially created that genre of skate punk fast pop punk to have them open was a good move as far as credibility was concerned. Blink-182's next effort, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, was greeted with immediate success, debuting at number 
one on the Billboard 200 and going triple platinum within three weeks. The record eventually sold in excess of 14 million copies worldwide. So I think by this point, Travis Barker was probably relishing in the idea that he made the right decision in leaving the Aquabats to join Blink-182. That was a very smart decision. And for two albums back to back to sell that many copies and to be so widely revered so quickly, it's really a good idea that Blink-182 didn't do their experimental record after Enema of the State. They waited and yeah, that was very smart. In 2001, Barker married Melissa Kennedy, but the two divorced in August 2002 after only nine months of marriage. So maybe it was a situation where very quickly his fame got in the way or he knew that it wasn't a good match or she knew it wasn't a good match. But when you're young, maybe it's better to cut your losses quickly if it's a very toxic relationship. And then right after this, they did the Boxcar Racer record, which cemented Travis Barker in the public eye as a very versatile drummer. So this was the next really smart thing that he did. Tom DeLonge was going to hire a studio drummer, but then he thought, oh, well, I'm actually in pretty good proximity to one of the best drummers in the world. Maybe I'll just ask him to do it. So he didn't want to pay for a studio drummer. So he just asked Travis Barker to do it. And I think this may have been a light bulb moment for Travis Barker, because if you watch the, the Boxcar Racer DVD, where they do some behind the scenes of the record and going on tour, Travis Barker is quoted as saying, I would love to do an album every year, every couple years. That's a completely different style of music. So he was itching to be versatile. He wanted the world to know he was versatile. He wanted the world to know that he was a force to be reckoned with when it came to drums, that he wasn't just a pop punk drummer, that he had more to give. And he was doing that with Boxcar Racer. And man, what a creative output as far as creativity is concerned. Because if you go back and listen to the Boxcar Racer drums specifically, those are some incredibly nuanced and creative drums. I'm just thinking of Tiny Voices, that intro. That drum part is so off the wall crazy and it still somehow works. And I don't know if I've ever heard a drum pattern like that since within that style of music. So gotta give kudos where props are due for Travis Barker being such a drummer of versatility. It was also around this time that Travis Barker did his first hip hop collaboration and he was essentially called in to do live drum acting in a P. Diddy video. And I'm not exactly sure if he even played drums on this track or if Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, I'm not sure what he was at the time, if he just wanted him to be in the video to kind of add that star quality and that rock star vibe and that rock star look because Travis was asked to perform in this video for the song that I'm not sure if he even played on. And I've seen Travis Barker in interviews mention that this was essentially when the floodgates opened and his mind was open to the idea of collaborating with all these hip hop artists because he grew up on hip hop and he was a fan of hip hop. Maybe within his own mind, he was thinking, oh, well, I can't collaborate with a hip hop artist. I'm a punk rock drummer. But Puff Daddy, an entrepreneur in his own right, gave him the autonomy and the ability to do so. And I feel like that was the moment where Travis Barker really decided and became somebody that could collaborate on all sorts of different genres, different artists, albums and songs and tracks and things. And he could produce and he could be versatile. He could be as versatile as he wanted to be. And it was actually a very smart career move because think about how many publishing points Travis Barker has for all of these popular and noteworthy and famous songs over the years. He's got to be getting checks left and right from different publishing companies, I would imagine. It was at that moment when he did the video for Puff Daddy that he decided I can do whatever I want to do and I don't have to box myself in and I don't have to answer to anybody and I can make as much or as little music as I want to and I can literally guest star on as many culturally relevant items or just artists that I enjoy as I want. And that's a very liberating and freeing thing, especially as somebody who is 
in the public eye and has all the resources available to him. I mean, if you can go into the studio and you love being in the studio and you love collaborating with different artists and that's the thing that lights you up inside, why wouldn't you do it? And for Travis, it just happens to be a very lucrative thing that continues to perpetuate him, his fame, his notoriety, and his cultural relevance in the lives that we inhabit. And at this point, he's collaborated with several hip-hop artists, including Eminem, Yellow Wolf, Asher Roth, Triple Red, The Game, and even his project with Transplants has that element of hip-hop. But what's also cool about Transplants and what was smart about him linking up with Tim Armstrong is it gave him that punk rock credibility as well. No one's ever claimed that Travis Barker is a sellout. He is just somebody that is always saying yes to opportunity, it seems. And Barker has always employed a variety of styles, including military styles, jazz rhythms, but he's always been attracted to the driving rhythms of hip-hop and punk rock, and I think that's served him well over the years. And just think about how many pop-punk artists or bands that have incorporated hip-hop into their sound. Maybe most notably is Fall Out Boy, but also all of the newer pop-punk artists now. I mean, I think it goes without saying that a lot of them sound like Post Malone pop-punk to me, which is heavily influenced by hip-hop. You can even hear the hip-hop influence in the more mature, experimental, self-titled or untitled record that they put out in Meaning Blink-182 in 2003. It has a lot of those hip-hop elements strewn throughout, and that was completely done by Travis Barker. All right, and this is where things get a little bit interesting. In 2005, due to souring relationships, Blink-182 announced via a press statement that they were going on indefinite hiatus. And most of us in the know know this situation well. They were squabbling with Tom DeLong on tour, and tensions were fairly high between Tom and Mark. Mark felt betrayed by Tom in the fact that he did the Boxcar Racer record, which they were still young. I would imagine they were still fairly immature. There were egos that were involved, and it probably was difficult to move on from that, thinking that your friend abandoned you, and then Tom thinking, well, I just want to expand my creative pursuits and my creative boundaries. They've been touring like crazy at this point, and Tom, I think, wanted to be a little bit more experimental. He then went on to form Angels and Airwaves, and Travis Barker and Mark Hoppus bought a studio together and started recording music for what would become the Plus 44 album. Even though the Plus 44 record didn't have nearly as much notoriety as Blink-182, I mean, how could it? I still think it was a smart decision on Barker's part to continue making music with Mark in some capacity, and they did create a great album. I mean, that Plus 44 record is an amazing record. And they then went on to the Honda Civic Tour with Fall Out Boy, and and there was a sense of humility there. They weren't headlining. They were opening for Fall Out Boy at that point, which I think after being such a superstar and being in such a noteworthy band for so many years, then to be opening a tour or even direct support as a tour, you're definitely consuming a slice of humble pie at that point. But it didn't phase them and they went out on tour anyways. And I think that was a smart decision to continue working. They did start working on a second album. It was never released. But Barker continued releasing hip-hop remixes all the way up to 2008. He collaborated with Flo Rida. You can't forget, too, he was making lots of money from his reality TV show on MTV, Meet the Barkers, from this period. So Blink breaks up, but Travis Barker is still very, very busy and still finding ways to make money, I'm sure of it, because that was from 2005 to 2008. That's when that Meet the Barkers aired. He started working on his solo album. He began performing with DJ AM, and they were good friends together, Adam Goldstein. In June 2008, in a collaboration, 
collaboration called Travis DJ AM. Essentially, DJ AM would mix a set of classic songs, which ranged from classic rock to dance, live with two turntables, and then Barker would enhance AM's groove with live drums. And the duo performed at the MTV Video Music Awards on September 7th, 2008. He was quoted as saying, our little duo of drummer and DJ had reached heights we never thought were possible. And this is what Barker said in a 2011 interview. It was also this year in 2008 on September 19th that they were unfortunately together in a plane crash. Travis and DJ AM performed at an event with Jane's Addiction singer Perry Farrell and Gavin DeGraw in Columbia, South Carolina. The trip was a special occasion and they were on a private plane. Barker had invited his wife Mokler but she declined saying she had a weird feeling about leaving their children and with a vacant seat Barker invited his security guard Shay Still figuring he'd be good company and would enjoy the trip. And Barker was always afraid to fly. He's mentioned this several times that he was never big into flying and he self-medicated a lot just to stay on the plane. Barker was always afraid to fly. In his teenage years, he was sure, quote-unquote sure, he would die in a plane crash. So September 19th, 2008, just before midnight, the plane headed for Van Nuys, California. It was racing down the runway when the occupants heard a loud bang. Travis Barker heard a loud bang. And according to the Federal Aviation Administration, the plane was departing from the airport when air traffic controllers saw sparks emanating from the plane. The pilot told the control tower that a tire had blown out and they would be aborting the takeoff. Instead, the plane hurtled through the airport's fence across the highway and crashed into an embankment. Quote, when everything stopped, I tried to get everyone I could. End quote. Barker remembered. Barker and Adam DJ AM Goldstein escaped the plane and ran in circles on the highway. Hearing others yell, stop, drop, and roll, Barker dropped to the ground and Goldstein helped him put out the fire on his feet. I was lying next to AM. As the plane was exploding, I was screaming, are we alive? Barker and DJ AM were transported to the Joseph M. Still Burn Center in Augusta, Georgia, where they were both listed in critical condition. They were the only survivors of the crash. Personal assistant Chris Baker and Shay Still, along with the two pilots, had died in the crash. Less than a year later, Goldstein died from a drug overdose. So pretty tragic. And yeah, Travis Barker is the only one who is still alive from that plane crash. A harrowing story, crazy story. I think this informs a lot of what Travis Barker does now. I don't think you can possibly go through something like that and not have a completely different perception and paradigm when it comes to living your life. Man, I just can't imagine. Travis Barker spent more than 11 weeks in hospitals and burn centers. He had 16 surgeries overall, and I think he's mentioned now that he's had 27 surgeries. He had blood transfusions that lasted four to eight hours and numerous skin grafts. There were times when they were talking about amputating my foot because I didn't have enough skin on my body for my grafts, he said. Barker also developed post-traumatic stress disorder, made worse by the intense guilt he felt knowing still wasn't supposed to be on the plane. During his time in the hospital, Barker was in so much pain that he was calling friends, offering them one million to help him end his life. Wow. Okay, so you can read more about Travis Barker's experience with the plane crash in his book. That's actually what the book opens up with, the plane crash. Just an unreal story. Travis Barker's accident ultimately led to the Blink-182 reunion. The group announcing their return was done so at the February 2009 Grammy Awards, and I remember watching this, and if you'll remember, it was actually Travis Barker who mentions that they are reuniting. We used to play music together, and we decided we're going to play music together again. 
it took some time, almost a year, for him to fully recover, but he continued to produce remixes throughout 2009, including a remix of 3AM by Eminem. He collaborated with Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash, and in the midst of the band's reunion tour in August 2009, DJ AM was found dead by a friend in his New York apartment. Though Goldstein had been prescribed medication for pain following the crash, the medical examiner reported that he died from acute intoxication, listing several prescription drugs and cocaine. The plane crash led Barker to make some lifestyle changes. He began running and swimming each day and went completely vegan since leaving the hospital, although he had already been vegetarian for 17 years at that point. He had also overcome a painkiller addiction he had for years prior to the plane crash. Quote, I didn't even take any pain medication after I got out of the hospital. They told me I'd be on some of the medicine for the rest of my life, but I got off of all of them, said Barker. Quote, they made me a completely different person. Barker hasn't flown since the accident. He actually has. He just did with Kourtney Kardashian, but he vowed that he wouldn't fly again. He typically travels by himself on his bus and takes a boat when touring to Europe. So, in 2011, after more than two years of setbacks and delays, Barker finally released his long-in-the-works solo debut, Give the Drummer Some, in March of 2011. And the record features collaborations with artists like Lil Wayne, Corey Taylor from Slipknot, Neighborhoods, Blink's sixth studio album was released in September of 2011 and peaked at number two on the Billboard 200. Barker then continued his collaborations working with Chester French, LL Cool J, Cypress Hill, and producing an entire EP of collaborations, Psycho White with rapper Yellow Wolf. It seems as though after releasing the EP, Dogs Eating Dogs, Blink-182 was trying to plan the following record. And there was all sorts of rumors that I would hear. I remember reading that at one point they were talking to Bill Stevenson from Descendants about doing a new record at the Blasting Room. I heard rumors that they were going to sign to Epitaph Records. I heard rumors that they were trying to find a record label and that was what was preventing them from actually completing the new record. What we would find out, and this is again where I think Travis Barker becomes one of the smartest people within the music industry, we find out that the reason they're being held up is largely by Tom. Tom DeLong doesn't want to get into the studio without having some sort of representation label-wise. He is consumed and prioritizing other projects like his To The Stars company, Angels and Airwaves, all of the media that they were trying to create. And it seemed as though his heart just wasn't really in going into the studio for months and crafting another Blink-182 album. And so this is a bit of a crossroads for Travis Barker and Mark Hoppus. What's really fascinating is the reason they decided to ultimately move forward without Tom DeLong was largely because of Travis Barker. Travis Barker was responsible for reaching out to Matt Skiba. So I I think the concept of moving on as Blink-182 with a different singer was crafted and strategized by Travis Barker. And I think he probably had to work to get Mark Hoppus on board because, man, what a scary proposition to be in a band like Blink-182 that has a legacy that crafted a sound and a look to take away one third of that band and move on had to be a scary thing to think about. But I think it speaks to the nature of the urgency that Travis Barker had after surviving a plane crash and living life purposefully and with intention and without any type of a scarcity mindset and also just being urgent with trying to get things accomplished quickly because Travis Barker was the one who arranged the meeting. They met with Alkaline Trio's Matt Skiba for lunch and asked him to fill in on a couple shows. These were the shows that Tom had committed to but then backed out of. So they wanted to honor their commitment for the Music Festival, which was Travis Barker's music festival. 
that he still does. And so they had Matt Skiba come in and play those shows. And I would imagine that was a bit of a trial run. Clearly, we all saw the footage. If you're interested in the footage of their first couple shows, you can watch it. They're both on YouTube. And Matt Skiba did a great job filling in for Tom DeLonge and singing those songs. And obviously, he wasn't trying to be Tom DeLonge. Matt Skiba is a legend in his own right. But Travis Barker was the one who facilitated that meeting. And then lo and behold, we find out that Travis Barker is also the one who set up the meeting with John Feldman. And in finding this stuff out, I was so fascinated and blown away by how smart Travis Barker was because he clearly saw all of this in his mind. He thought, we can continue on without Tom. We don't need Tom to designate and dictate our entire lives and our entire schedules and what we do with the legacy of Blink-182. I've been collaborating with hundreds of artists over the last decade, last two decades almost, and I've always managed to come out ahead and we can move on with Matt Skiba, who fits the bill, and we can continue on with the trajectory of putting out Blink-182 music and continuing to tour. And then California does really, really well. And then they go on their 20-year tour for Enema of the State. And Mark Hoppus is quoted as saying that that was the most profitable tour they have ever done. And by the way, they had Lil Wayne open for them. Whose idea do you think that was? I know a lot of people were freaking out when they found out Lil Wayne was opening direct support for Blink-182, but it worked and it paid off. And it's because of the fearlessness of their drummer. Now, I know a lot of people, they don't love California or they may have mixed feelings about California. And I know several people have mixed feelings about the new incarnation of Blink-182 in general with Matt Skiba and the band. But I think whether you like it or not, I still think it was a brilliant move on Travis Barker's part to orchestrate this collaboration between not only replacing Tom DeLonge, because Tom DeLonge was the bottleneck in keeping them out of the studio and playing live and continuing on as Blink-182 and continuing to keep that machine rolling. So Travis Barker was responsible for arranging the meeting with John Feldman, and John Feldman ultimately would go on to record California and the vast majority of Nine, their last release that they put out. Ultimately, it paid off because California did very, very well. And I do think it had, despite what some people may feel about it, it had a lot of fans as well. It was a callback to their roots, their earlier pop punk sound. It was a pop punk record through and through. They released a completely separate album that they tacked on the end of it as the deluxe release a year later. They weren't holding themselves back as far as getting material out there. And they crafted a lot of material. They wrote a ton of songs and recorded a ton of songs. John Feldman helped them do that. And I remember listening to Mark in an interview talk about how John Feldman would come to them and say, okay, let's just write a song today. And that's largely how they do it today. They just record a song in a day. It's easy to create and cultivate a lot of material very quickly. And they're not overthinking it to death. You know, it's not like the untitled record where they spent over a year recording it and pining over it. They are able to be more prolific with their writing. And beyond the two new Blink-182 records, take a look at what Travis Barker has done with the newer flock of pop-punk artists, such as Machine Gun Kelly. They tested the waters by putting out that single with Youngblood and Machine Gun Kelly, and it blew up. So it was all systems go. And Travis Barker has now been featured on so many different upcoming pop-punk artists, alternative artists, rock artists, whatever you want to call it, songs and things. I feel like every Friday there's a new release and it's got featuring Travis Barker on it. Kind of unreal. It's unbelievable how prolific he is and how prolific he can be because he's doing all these collaborations 
collaborations with Kenny Hoopla and Mod Sun and Atreyu and Avril Lavigne. The list goes on and on. And I'm sure a lot of people have Travis Barker fatigue at this point, but I think it's irrelevant because, again, he's living purposefully, he's living urgently. He probably doesn't really care what anybody thinks as far as how many tracks he's featured on because he's spearheading a lot of these campaigns that are blowing his artists up. And even his social media, if you go to his social media, it's very carefully curated. He has a photographer that follows him around and takes these photos of his announcements. He's got a studio in his house now so he can record whenever he wants. He's got several people that he can turn to as far as production or engineering, whether it be Kevin Thrasher or Matt Malpas or John Feldman or Zach Servini. I mean, the list goes on and on. At this point, he can work with whoever he wants and he's got a team of people that can help him create all this music and create all this music for his artists at the same time. And even last week, he announced that he signed Avril Lavigne to his record label DTA Records. So yes, again, I can't overstate how brilliant and smart I think Travis Barker is, not just as a musician, but as a fully fledged entrepreneur and businessman. And it's okay if you disagree with me. I'd love to talk to you about it if you have a different opinion than me. That's completely fine. It's fun to talk about these things though, right? And oh, by the way, a couple weeks ago, he proposed to Kourtney Kardashian and that family is worth multiple billions of dollars. So again, I think there's even some strategy involved in that as well, because together they're only going to perpetuate and propel each other's fame and public eyeness. He is turning 46 very soon, so I don't imagine he's going to slow down anytime soon. He's probably just going to be doing it until he's irrelevant, and even then he'll probably still craft music as a means of creating art and doing art for art's sake, or he'll stop when he's 50 and then we'll no longer be getting tracks featuring Travis Barker, but who knows? I would imagine he's going to continue to make smart moves within the music industry and continue creating relevance within music, the scene, and the legacy of Blink-182. And I look forward to seeing what he does because if nothing else, he keeps it interesting. All right, got some interviews in the works coming up. If you have listened this far, I appreciate you. I hope you're having a wonderful day and a wonderful week out there beyond podcast land. Thank you for listening. Go listen to some Travis Barker music. There's a lot to pick from and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I hope you had a good time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to help the podcast out, if you want to do a massive solid for us here at Having a Blast, if you could just leave us a review, a five-star review would be amazing wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you just want to recommend this podcast to a friend who might enjoy it. All right. Hope you have a wonderful day. Hope you're having a blast listening to your favorite records. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) 